0: Okay, here we go. Nice and quiet. Sound speeds, camera rolling.
1: Holding for sound. Last looks. Calling for last looks.
2: And
0: set and action.
2: I need to swap batteries. You know, making movies is hard.
1: Making movies is hard. Welcome to Making Movies is Hard, the podcast about the struggles of being an independent filmmaker. I am Liz Manischel.
2: And I am Ulrich Brassell.
1: This week, we have the amazing Jessica Ellis. She talks with us about her first feature, What Lies West, and her work as a writer and a fancy influencer.
2: Very fancy influencer.
1: I don't regret it. I don't regret it. Do I wish we had had,
3: you know, the money to the hire name actors in a lot of the roles? Yeah, that would have been nice. It would have helped us sell it. But I don't know if we'd have a better movie. We'd have a more marketable movie, and that's a different thing.
2: Before we get to Jessica's interview.
3: I'm Lori
1: Craven, and. I'm an actress.
2: An actress, really? How nice for you.
0: I'm Betsy Faye Sharon,
2: and I'm a bitch. Soap dish, oh my gosh. It's been so long. (laughs) It is back. One of the best of our intros uh, that we have is this one. So I'm glad that we're doing one this week. Uh, So we actually have a very special guest for our soap dish, Alec Trachtenberg, who wrote a book called Lights, Camera, Sales Techniques for Independent Filmmakers, which teaches filmmakers the importance of having a sales mindset. So here's Alec to talk about his book and some tips.
4: Hey, it's Alec Trachtenberg here. I'm an independent film producer, author, and sales consultant. My company is CoStart Productions. I have over a decade of experience generating revenue for a variety of technology startup companies. And even I've worked with major brands like Airbnb, Amazon, and Netflix. I've also produced films, um, which include the 2018 horror film, The Cabin, uh, which you can find on Amazon Prime, Tubi, and uh, Google Play. And throughout the years, I realized that there was a lot of crossover in what I was doing as a salesperson and as a filmmaker. Um, With that being said, I decided to write a book filled with tips and techniques that have helped me throughout my sales career and relate them to the pursuit of filmmaking. I recently published Lights, Camera, Sell, Sales Techniques for Independent Filmmakers, which highlights the importance of adopting a sales mindset as a filmmaker. And then although most filmmakers and creative types don't really focus on the business side, I argue that it's important to at least be aware of it and to adopt certain techniques to help sell yourself, your projects, and even your services. In Lights, Camera, Sell, I walk you through the five stages of the sales process and use case studies that relate to independent filmmaking. So the five stages of the sales process are prospecting, discovery, demonstrating value, closing the deal, and relationship success. So for example, in the prospecting stage, I use a case study to teach readers how to locate a screenplay on sites like Blacklist and Simply Scripts, and ultimately reach out to a screenwriter to option it. Um, And in the discovery stage, I teach you how to hold a discovery meeting with a distributor and asking the right questions to ensure that they're the best partner for the film. Um, and then in the de- demonstrate value stage, I teach you how to create pitch decks, business plans, and other sales collateral when speaking with financiers um, and so on. So I do this for every stage. And today, i like to share a few major tips from the book uh, that I think it's really important to walk away with. Um, So the first tip would be to do your research and know your audience. So anytime you're about to speak to somebody, whether it be a investor, distribution company or cinematographer, make sure to do some research on them before having a conversation. This could be anything from looking at their IMDB profile to looking them up on LinkedIn or Google. This is because you don't want to ask them surface level questions that you can easily get online. By going on their IMDb or LinkedIn, you can see where they've worked in the past or if there's any sort of mutual connections that you have that might be beneficial to bring up. Another tip that I have is to personalize your message. So these people are getting reached out to daily um, from people from all walks of life, right? So using the research that you've done, Use attention-grabbing subject lines in your email, or ask unique questions about their work, or mention shared connections. You know, if if you have a shared connection, definitely mention that. Um, You know, it's a little bit more of a warmer introduction. Another tip I have is to create a list of questions for your prospect. So using the research you've done on them, you can ask a little bit more thought-provoking questions than your just general, like, oh, where have you worked before, Um, since you can get this information online easily. You know, if they've worked on a project in the past with a specific person, you know, ask them what it was like working with that person. Um, Also, you know, what types of projects interest them. What are their goals? People love to talk about their goals and then also find out what their pain points are too. Um, what's something that they don't look forward to or something that they want to get away from. Another tip is to master your elevator pitch. So as an independent filmmaker, people are always gonna ask you, so what project are you working on? Or what have you done in the past? Or even what type of filmmaker are you? Are you a cinematographer? Are you an editor? So it's really important to be able to articulate what you do in an exciting way that will make sense for your prospect and almost get them interested to want to work with you. So, for example, you know if you're a cinematographer who's worked on a variety of projects, you know name a few and talk about what your favorite project was and what you're working on at the moment. Um, you also want to give an overview of what your film project is about, right? So, if it's a romantic comedy that has a lot to do with themes of feminism in some way, you know, talk about that and be excited and show the enthusiasm of what you're working on because people gravitate towards enthusiasm and wanna be part of something that is going to be positive. My last tip today is to build sales materials when demonstrating value at all times. So, you know, this could be anything from business plans to pitch decks to demo reels and trailers. Um, You know when you're talking to a financier you know if you don't have a business plan you're not going to look legit you want to have a whole breakdown of you know where that money's going who's participating in the project what you plan on having in terms of a budget um, and all that and then in terms of demo reels i mean if you're a director cinematographer or even an actor you you have to be able to show you know what you've done in the past um, whether it be a dramatic reel versus a comedic reel Um, People are going to be looking at that, you know, when assessing to see if you were the right person for the job. Also, there's no reason not to have a website and social media presence, especially since that's such a crucial component in today's marketing strategies. Right. So, you know, if you're an actor or filmmaker, you must have a website where you could have, you know, links that show your work or show some sort of publicity about, you know, what you're doing um, in, in, in the world. So this pandemic has impacted the entire world, including the filmmaking community. And, you know, there's really no better time than now to learn how to promote yourself and adopt a business mindset. So if you think about it, you know, there's a millions of independent filmmakers out there that are, you know, doing what you're doing, right? And how are you going to set yourself apart from everybody else? So I cover all that in my book, um, Lights, Camera, Sell. And you can buy it on Amazon, Apple Books, and Barnes & Noble, and it's available in both paperback and Kindle editions. Um, And if you have any questions on how you can generate more opportunities and sell yourself, be sure to also follow me on Instagram at Alec Tracht, that's A-L-E-C-T-R-A-C-H-T. Thanks.
3: My breath catches in my chest until I
2: hear three little words,
1: you got mail mail
2: oh boy what do we got for this week liz
1: you found uh an itunes review from the uk from back in the past back in june 2020 when life was simpler than it is right now still not so simple life just gets more and more complicated every single day That's true. <laughs> so june That's feels true. like a pleasant holiday at this point. right right um so i brasso on june 3rd 2020 it said that the podcast is really great So Ibrasso says, just listen to this podcast for the first time, episode 68. What was episode 68, Ulrich? What is it? Go, I think it was
2: 268, I'm pretty sure, and um, I don't remember.
1: It was a really good one. Um, And Ibrasso said it was so great. Really informative and relaxed and enjoyable. Plus, I'm in the edit on the first short film I've written and directed, so this podcast is exactly what I need. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Ibrasso.
2: Thank you, Ibrasso. Much appreciated. And that would have been, if it is 268 and not actually 68, which would have been like from five years ago or four years ago, it was uh, our episode with Robin Kincaid about getting on set and being a PA. So
1: oh, yeah, I hope that we were one. appropriately relaxed from that point onwards.
2: So yeah, if you want to be like Ibrasso's and send us a question, comment, suggestion, or an iTunes review, you can go to podcast at making movies is um, and then you can leave the review on iTunes or Stitcher if you want to do the second half of what I said earlier. Um, but guess what? We also have a Patreon page. So if you really love the show and you want to show us with your money, how much you love the show, you can go over to www.patreon.com slash and give us a buck a month. You can give us $2 a month, $5 or $9 and you'll get a fancy pin that, uh, you know, Liz will send you and she'll send you an email and she'll send you pins. <laughs> Um, and it'll be wonderful. We've, we've had a couple of people get pins recently and it's been really fun. Um, we have yet to get photos of people using their pins and wearing them, but maybe we'll get those soon. Um, and lastly, jump over to our Instagram page. You can click the link to our bio on the link on our, in our bio. Yeah. Click the link in our bio. That's what you should do. And you can go over to our new YouTube page and watch, uh, you know, this episode right now that's happening but actually watch it, not just listen to it. And you can see us as we're doing things like this. And then Liz, do something. Yeah, see, Liz just did something. (laughs) And you wouldn't even know what it is if you're not watching. So you should really go over to see what it is. What shirt am I wearing today? I don't know. I mean, I do know, but you don't know. But you'll find out if you listen or watch. Listen, and
1: that's the first time I think I've ever seen you improvise, and it was so successful. Like, it oh, really? was the most successful improvisation. Well,
2: <laughs> well I mean, like, uh, gosh, I mean, probably 150 episodes of the show are all improvised, you <laughs> know, ba- barely looking at questions. Before we did video, I, I would just be, like, listen, like, on my computer, like, just talking, you know, like, to my screen. But now that we do video, I was like, I have to look, interact, and... You know, I can't just zone out while doing the show. Not to say that I ever zoned out before, but you know, maybe once or twice. Anyways, um, yeah, Liz, what do you have for us? You got some stuff, right?
1: Yeah, I wanna talk about our latest short film to celebrate and get shorty.
3: So you make movies, huh? I produce feature motion pictures. I got an idea for a movie.
1: So this week we have We're Having Sex by Michael Callahan, and Michael Callahan is a buddy of mine from film school. He was actually my boss when I worked in the student production office at USC, Uh and a lovely, lovely human, and here he is to talk about his short film.
0: The short format is a super undervalued medium, in my opinion. If I could wave a magic wand, I would give short films the popularity and adoration they truly deserve. Short films are freed up from so many of the storytelling constraints that are placed on feature-length films. You don't have to worry about three-act structure if you don't want to. You don't have to have a B storyline. You don't have to wrap up your protagonist's journey or give the kind of satisfying ending one would expect when they invest two hours of their life into something. You're just, you know, stopping in and visiting a few characters for a brief moment. You're catching them for 15 minutes out of a 24 hour day. And as a filmmaker, you can really drill down and focus just on a single thing, something that really couldn't sustain itself for 90 to 120 minutes or longer. And for me, when I make short films, I make them because I need to exercise something. And that's exercise with an O, not an E, by the way. You know, I have something on my mind and on my heart that's weighing on me, and I need to get it out and make it as a sort of therapeutic midwifing, if you will. And short films are really perfect for that. As a creative challenge, I wanted to see if I could figure out a way to make something that on paper is rather anti-dramatic, a couple sort of slowly falling out of love with one another, and make it dramatic. Most movie breakups are sort of what I would call traditionally cinematic, you know, infidelity, a character tragically dying in a car crash, or from a disease, or something like that. And while, of course, these events, you know, do tragically happen in real life, I would say that the vast, vast majority of relationships end in conventionally boring ways. And I'm putting boring in air quotes there. The thing is, though, is that they're not boring to the people that they happen to. When you go through a breakup with someone that you've loved for some time, you know, even years, I mean, it's excruciating. It feels like your heart is being ripped apart by werewolves, you know? But that's all internalized drama. You know, there's a tragic opera playing out in your mind and your heart. But on paper, it's rather uneventful. You know, Bob and Susie fell out of love. How do you dramatize that? And so that was the challenge that I gave myself. This is an easy one. I spent about $3,500 out of pocket on the film shoot. And the post funds were raised on Kickstarter. We lucked out and got featured on their homepage. And that got us over the finish line way faster than I think any of us anticipated. It was a real blessing. I don't know if this is controversial to say, but when it comes to short films, your end goal should be the work itself. I believe that should be the end goal of any creative work, really, but especially with a short format, because the financial side just isn't really there like it is for feature films. And the feature film market is brutal enough. The idea at the root of the film was like a burning ember in my chest that I had to excise and order to sort of move on with my life. I submitted it to some film festivals, but honestly, what gave it the most exposure and success were just two websites. Short of the Week, which is a phenomenal catalog of short films of all kinds, of every genre and format, and the front page of the video subreddit on Reddit. And these two events sort of catapulted the film in terms of exposure. It got written up in a few places, and ultimately it ended up with about 2 million views. It really made me reevaluate the value of traditional film festivals, because if your ultimate purpose is to get eyeballs on your film, you know, to share your story with as many people as possible, the internet is the place to be. I mean, you can only cram so many folks inside of a physical movie theater, but the world wide web is limitless. The personal messages I would receive from people who went through difficult relationships or painful breakups, and who felt a deep connection to the film, those messages made everything worth it. If someone watches this and feels a moment of connection or catharsis, or they feel just a little less lonely, that's it. That's what it's all about. And also, I think every creative, if we're being honest with ourselves, has a bit of an ego. And so for a little while after the film started gaining traction from short of the week, I would Google the name of the film to see if anyone had written anything about it. And it popped up in some weird places. Uh, It was written about in Turkey, in India, that was a fun one. I translated the review, and it was a criticism of how cavalier Westerners were with their sexuality. But one night, I had just finished grocery shopping at a Trader Joe's, and I finished packing all the groceries in my trunk, and before I started the engine to drive home, my ego got the best of me. I thought, well, okay, let me just Google it again and see if anyone had said anything, and I noticed that someone had just posted a review on YouTube. It was this dude from Atlanta. I think he was 21 at the time, about 10 years younger than I was. And it was a really professional production, and he had put together this really thoughtful review of the film, and he nailed every beat of it. He nailed my intentions with the characters, with the plot. He understood the film in a deep way, a way that even some of my closest friends, who I had shown the film in the editing process, didn't really understand. But this guy really did. And he took God knows how many hours out of his life to set up a camera, and lights, and write something up, and film it, and edit it all for a passion project that I put together 2,000 miles away. I literally wept in my car, in the parking lot of a Trader Joe's. So I would say that's the purpose.
1: So, Auric, what did you think about Michael Callahan's film, We're Having Sex?
2: Well, uh, it was very interesting. Um, I really liked the style of the film a lot. I thought it was really well done and well made. Um... You know, it wasn't what I was expecting, I think, because I think a lot of times with these short films, it's something that's more like, like really short and witty and like kind of to the point and like with a title like We're Having Sex, I kind of thought it would be more like of a joke or a gag or um, something, you know, but it was actually just like a heartfelt story, you know, um, told over 13 minutes or so and you know, it was really well done. I mean, I, I had some real emotion uh, from watching uh, the film, which was, you know, not what you usually get out of watching a short film, you know, no offense to previous short films, but it, it was just really, really good. Um, I thought the female lead was hilarious and very charming. I liked that there was some jokes that were snuck in there that like, it felt were like her just like kind of improvising, but maybe they were written, but they whatever it was, it was so well done. Um, and, you know, <laughs> I didn't really like how the David character was portrayed a lot of the time because his experience and the character, what the character's going through from the very beginning of of the movie is so like against like how I am as a man. Like, I just don't think those situations would happen. Even if I were in a bad relationship, it's like, it would be, it would become out in different ways, not in the way that it comes out in, in this show, in this short, you know? So, but I get, I, I talked to my wife about this and, you know, she was reminding me that I'm not every man, like I don't speak for all men, you know, so that this probably does resonate for some men and, and just doesn't resonate for me. So maybe, maybe that's okay. And then by the end, I was going to say that like, when you get to the end of the movie and, and the final thing happens, it makes everything else that happened in the, the earlier of the movie make more sense and kind of detract from that, that feeling of not really connecting with, or understanding the David character and not thinking that he's a real person. Like when you see what he does at the very end of the show or the movie, I keep on calling it a show. The short. <laughs> he uh it just kind of fits really well and it kind of it's like nice and perfect and a good ending. I mean it's it's a sad ending, but I think it's really good. Anyways, Liz, I rambled enough. What you,
4: what did you think? No, of the I thought it
1: was really good. Um sorry, I was also distracted by my dog sneezing throughout <laughs> your entire <laughs> I just heard it. (laughs) Uh, There's three sneezes, That just, okay. Um, So what I wanted to, I really wanted to hear from Michael because um, he made this film over seven years ago. And what I think is really interesting is like the kind of distance that can inform how you feel about a piece. So I'm glad that we're hearing from him so long after he's made it. And and, like, as you know, he may talk about, um, it has like 2 million views on Vimeo. Yeah um I also liked you know it felt personal I actually really liked that David was like such an unflattering depiction of a a man and he seemed very selfish and very dark and um I don't know when you're in that like indie romantic dramedy drama space you don't really get to see I don't get to see those kind of flaws I don't think I've ever seen those kind of flaws in a character and it felt it felt real to me but I don't know like I don't I haven't known a man like that but it felt like a real person um and um what else it just yeah it didn't it fit as a short but you felt like there was so much substance to it that it could definitely be a feature so it felt like a good calling card for a filmmaker who and I know Michael really likes like Lynn Shelton and like Kelly Reichart so it feels like a calling card for that type of director. I thought it was a good uh, showpiece for him.
2: I, I just think that there was a lot that was right, but then there were some things that just didn't resonate for me. But, I get, but again, like, I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like wonder what, what other people think, like if this is, feels true to them, if they've been in relationships like this before, you know, um, but yeah, I don't know. I think whatever your opinion is, like the fact that it's spur, spurring so many conversations just with, with me in one day, you know, having watched it, like I usually don't. I don't always talk about the short films that I watch on the show. You know, with with my uh, with my partner. So it's and that says a lot, right there. And then I also wanted to say, two million views on Vimeo is like twenty million views on YouTube. Like, there's so few movies that get that many views on Vimeo. You know, it's usually like a couple hundred thousand, maybe a million. You know, but like I don't really see the two M's too often on Vimeo. So it's congratulations.
1: Crazy. I remember. It was a really exciting, it, it, like really exciting time for Michael, that like his film was getting this attention. And I remember it got Vimeo stock, stock pick and I remember it got, um, I don't know, just a lot of eyeballs his way. But I do also remember him spreading the word in a very thoughtful, considerate way to his network. So I'm oh, nice. hoping that um, we'll learn more about that from his recording.
2: Well, I think without any further delay, we should get to our conversation with Jessica.
1: Hey. Um Jessica you're you're here. Thank you for being here. Today. I am here. <laughs> I'm very excited to be here. Um let's uh, chat uh briefly about What Lies West in a in a big picture way. So how many days did you shoot the film? Uh oh <laughs> total I think our shooting days were let's call them
3: 17 and a half. Um, it was a fourteen-day principal photography and a three-day uh, pickup, um, plus a day uh, where we kidnapped our lead actresses and made them walk around a lot of hills. That <laughs> was just me and our DP.
2: What was your budget?
3: Our budget uh, total is ending up being around one hundred and ten thousand.
1: How long did you work on the film from, from script uh, to release?
3: Uh, I started on the script in, I want to say either April or May of 2017. Um, we shot the first half in August of 2017. Uh, we had a very long break for some absurd reasons. Um, shot the second half of principal photography in uh, February 2018 and then the pickup in June of 2018. So. A little over a year for print, for actual production, um, and then about a year of post.
2: And how big was your crew, minus that one day? <sighs>
3: Over the course of the shoot, I think it was about 30 people overall, but not ever all at once. I think we operated with about an a 18-person
1: crew day to day. And out of all the projects you've you've been a part of, how difficult was this one in comparison?
3: Well, <laughs> this one had some um, unusual challenges associated with it. It was also the biggest thing I had ever taken on by, by far. Um, so it's definitely the most challenging project i've ever been a part of but also the most fun so it's hard to rate it it wasn't it wasn't
1: unpleasant in any way it was just a lot i feel like there's something you're not saying but i want it but i i feel like (laughs) i want to ask about that but i also really want to ask how did you write a script in like late spring and make the movie that summer like how How did you make that happen?
3: Uh, Insanity would be the number one answer to that. Um, (laughs) You know, we just, we had the motivation suddenly to shoot something. We had a hole in our schedule, me and my husband slash DP producer, Sean. And um, we just were like, let's do it now before we run out of steam or get distracted by anything or anything comes up that could put this off. So it was a real drive to get it going. And, you know, I've been a screenwriter for 12 years at this point. So if I can't write a decent script in, in, <laughs> in three months, I, I think I would be in, in trouble. And I had lots of time between the breaks to work on rewriting and fleshing out more things because um, I was able to look at what we had shot initially. So it, it was an evolving script. It wasn't 100% done in three months um, in the the way it ended up, but it was, yeah, it was a fast writing process, but I was pretty sure of where I was going with it.
2: So it was basically just because you had the time and the opportunity and you just took advantage of it, basically, to go shoot the movie.
3: Yeah, you know, it's it's hard when you get into the kind of Hollywood groove of gigs and projects and pitching and fellowship entries and everything like time just passes. You know, it's I. Uh, last week was my 10 year graduation anniversary from grad school from AFI. And it's just like, oh, my God, the first five years of that was just trying to find anything that we could get done and, and make or, or work on. So we just finally got to a point where it's like, all right, it's been years like we need to make something of our own. And once that fire got lit, I was so terrified of it it going out that I just pushed us ever
1: forward as fast as possible it sounds like you had a unique situation that happened though like you you giggled a little bit when you said how difficult this project was
3: well a a few things happened in the middle of shooting that the first half of shooting went off pretty much without a hitch it it went pretty well we felt very proud of ourselves Um, and then about three weeks after shooting i got diagnosed with a a heart defect, a congenital heart defect that I'd had all my life and didn't know about and could kill me. Um, So I had open heart surgery uh, about a month after we finished our first half while we we had just started our second round of crowdfunding and I was in the ICU. Um, And then about a month after that, um, the Sonoma County wildfires of 2017 hit, which um, sent our crew and cast up there all scrambling into, you know, evacuation for weeks and burned a good portion of the places we had shot um, and some that we were hoping to reshoot at. So there there was a few months of disaster in there. And then I also had to have right after our second half of shooting a, a second, uh, follow-up surgery. So yeah, it was, um, <laughs> I would not recommend going through heart surgery while shooting a movie to anyone.
2: Jeez. If Gosh. you can schedule yeah, those separately,
3: imagine. try to.
2: Obviously the surgeries went well. I'm I take it. Yeah.
3: Yeah. The surgeries went great. Awesome. <laughs> I, I am fully functional again.
2: <laughs> nice. Um, Well, I I had a question (laughs) just kind of off topic a little bit, but just sort of what would like leading up to what you making this movie, but can you describe like what your day to day is? Are you like a a full-time writer? Like, are you directing things like commercials? Like what do you do as your day job to pay the bills? And like, what, what, what like did you take a break from to go make your, your feature?
3: Primarily I'm a writer. Uh, My training is in writing, um, in both playwriting and screenwriting. Uh, so I have made my life like many of us do uh, through various stupid internet writing gigs, uh, you know, working for different sites. I worked in entertainment editing for a couple of years. That's that's the job I left to, to do the movie. Um, and then just freelancing for comedy sites, freelancing for all sorts of places. Uh, what Lies West was actually the first thing I had directed since a play when I was, I think, about 20. Um, So, yeah, it was a it was a big jump to directing, um, but it turned out I loved it. So it's something I'm definitely looking to do more of in the future because it was a lot of fun. Um, But yeah, and my husband runs a a camera rental company called Iguana Digital. So that's that was his kind of day to day that he had to basically shut down for a couple months to do the film.
1: Why this movie? Like, yes, you, you're you a good writer and you could put together a script in a few months and you probably were writing to your resources, but did you feel this need to, is this a statement film? Is there some thesis that you want to get across as an artist or was it like you just wanted to get something out and into the can?
3: Yeah, when, when we kind of conceived of doing this, it was shortly after the 2016 election, about six months in, and things were looking pretty grim uh, already. And I mean, it's hard to believe from the perspective of now, but even then we knew it was going to be bad, but, (laughs) uh, we, I kind of was thinking about like, man, I remember being a teenager and stuff like, you know, big world events going on and sometimes feeling a little bit lost in that and feeling like what was going on in my life didn't matter. So I was drawn to tell a story that still dealt specifically with girls on the verge of adulthood, girls going through the process of, of growing up and becoming adults. Um, I wanted something that felt positive and felt like you could watch it and kind of breathe a sigh of relief because it wasn't gonna make you miserable. And that's something very specifically focused on on young girls.
2: Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen the movie, but the trailer is definitely uh, delightful and uplifting and um, yeah, I could totally get that from the film um, But I wanted to ask like what do you like what was some of the biggest challenges you faced as like I mean not really a first time director but like kind of a first time director from doing it in a long time but definitely a first feature director. like what were some of the hurdles of um, you know, managing a crew and, and, you know, bringing this, this movie to life, especially so quickly.
3: Uh, primarily and not having any idea what I was doing was a big one. Um, but, you know, it was something that I approached with that attitude of I am going to be the least experienced member of the crew. You know, I have never ascribed to auteur theory. I think, I think in terms of theater where everybody is a vital part of, an operation to to make a to put on a play, so it was good because in in some ways it allowed me to let everybody else do their jobs to the best of their ability and allow them to be creative in the process too without me trying to be dictatorial. Um, I would say the biggest obstacle I faced really personally was I was terrified I was going to be a horrible mean director because um, my experience had been primarily with kind of monsters on set. Uh, and I was like, Oh God, I'm going to turn into that. I'm going to be screaming at people. I'm going to be awful. Um, and so it was kind of a shock to get to set and be like, no, there's no reason to be like that. That doesn't have to be what my vibe is. Like I'm so, I was so excited to get to be there and so, um, moved by the fact that anybody would give up time to come shoot a thing with me like I I was so honored to be a part of it that it ended up really being a blast and I think our set was generally a really relaxed and fun place um but yeah it was it it was walking into it knowing that I knew absolutely nothing about what I was doing you know I read some books I talked to some director friends but until you're on there calling shots like it's (laughs) it's all theoretical (laughs) until you get there
1: This is already my favorite interview, other than the fact that Jessica is so charming, but it's the first time in like a year that I've seen the movie and Ulrich hasn't, and I never (laughs) watch the movies, like zero, like this is just by happenstance that I had seen your film, Jessica. Um, So I'm just gloating right now because I have a question about the actual movie. Uh, So (laughs) <laughs> in terms because that Blue. Ulrich always gets to do this. <laughs> oh, Ulrich, you're there like 98 percent of the time. I uh know. So in terms of cast, I'm curious about your decision to go after non-names, or you know, what what informed your casting strategy? Was it was it the fact that you had to get this together? Were you gonna Were you trying to focus on local talent? What was What was your guiding light there?
3: Um, the two girls who are the leads, uh, Chloe Moore and Nicolette Ellis. Um, well, there was the one thing that they're both related to me. Um, I I they're both my nieces um, and they're both actors and I had known them since birth and I kind of felt like you know if I'm going to go on this insane journey where I'm asking people to be willing to listen to my direction I would like to have actors that are not going to be like wow she doesn't know what the hell she's doing um, so it was it was helpful to have actors who it was also their first time on set although not not their first experience with acting but they were theater they're both theater actors. Um, So there was that. They're very interesting and unusual girls, both in just how they look and their presence. Um, Having watched them together because they're cousins, you know, I knew that they had a really unusual dynamic that I thought would play on screen very, very well. And then for the rest of the cast, we had initially intended to go SAG, um, and then we ran into some trouble with our SAG rep uh, because they did not want to give us a Taft-Hartley for the girls and they were trying to charge us like five thousand dollars to even get started and they wanted us to reshoot the first half of the film after they gave us a taft Hartley. Like it was it was a lot of really strange conditions. And so we were like, well we don't have the money to put into this. Um, so instead, we went to a casting director uh, who works with both SAG and non SAG and did auditions with them for the rest of the roles. And it, it worked out great. Like, it, you know, there are plenty of professional, amazing actors that are just under the radar of SAG or, or for one reason or another, don't work enough to be involved in the union. And, and it was those people are really happy to come to work. It, you know, they're really happy to be on set and like we had a very firm no assholes policy so that was also (laughs) great you know i spent a lot of time in casting just talking to the actors and feeling like okay i feel like this is somebody that fits in with what we're what we're doing as well as their performance so yeah it, it was it was kind of a it was a decision that started with the girls and then organically grew into what the rest of the cast was
2: and um Like the no assholes policy, I wanted to ask about that. Did did you ever have to um, deal with that, or were you guys lucky and all your crew and and cast and everybody just turned out to be great? Uh, You guys got we
3: we were lucky, or I don't want to say we were lucky. We were careful in our selection, um, and we we were looking for specific people. A lot of them, a lot of our crew came from. people my husband has worked with over the years or that we were at AFI with. We had an 80% female crew, um, which I don't wanna generalize, but I think also lends to a more (laughs) cooperative spirit on set. There were not a lot of competing egos. um, And it was, well, what's really been great going forward from shooting is the majority of our crew is now like a little crew family that does other projects together. They're each other's first call. So, you know, that makes me feel good because it feels like we really built an atmosphere on set that made, you know, that made people want to be together. Um, And that was, that was a lot of fun. We got very lucky and just got great people
1: you said you enjoyed directing so much and then it was a surprise to you what what did you like about it what What was exciting about directing and what was a surprise
3: uh, being in charge is fun um my previous experiences <laughs> with set were largely in grad school uh and the way afi's program set up is that writers have no power on set um and ha- and no one wants them there so generally you get shoved into doing craft services which on a school set where basically your budget is like, well, there's chips, uh, is a very boring, very long job. Uh, And I was observing a lot of directors on their first time in their early twenties when they were kind of horrible. So I thought set was a miserable experience. Um, And it turned out that when your attitude is not like that, it is not a miserable experience at all. I don't know, I just really loved being able to let people do their thing and marvel at the gifts of my crew and and every you know i would say something like i know this is insane but is it possible that we could rig a thing to do a thing and they'd just be like yep give us 40 minutes like and and it was it was astounding getting to watch so many talented people work and i was just really happy to be there i I liked being there
2: so after going through and making the movie uh, with no uh, like you know well-known actors or named actors in the movie, um, do you regret that decision? And just a little context: I just did the same thing. I made my first feature and I went non-SAG, and I have no famous people in my movie. So <laughs> I'm editing it right now, and I'm just wondering: like, did that end up being a factor, or was it like, no, I have the performances I wanted? This is awesome. I love it.
3: I have the performances that I wanted for sure. I'm I'm really happy with the acting in the film. You know, it does make it significantly harder in terms of festivals. Um, it probably cuts down your distribution bargaining chips by a significant amount. Like there's you know, there's definitely sacrifices you make. But if your goal is to make a good movie, the performances matter. If your goal is to become a millionaire then <laughs> other things matter more but I didn't have any you know this was a movie with a first-time director made in 17 days in my hometown with my niece. like the chances that I was gonna sell this for five million dollars at Sundance never existed from the beginning so you know I don't regret it I don't regret it do I wish we had had you know the money to the higher name actors in a lot of the roles yeah that would have been nice it would have helped us sell it but
1: I don't know if we'd have a better movie. We'd have a more marketable movie. And that's a different thing. Let's talk about festivals though. How how did you fare and what was your experience like? Not
3: great, not great. (laughs) Like (laughs) the the places that we went, we had amazing receptions. We've done three festivals. Uh, We did Twin Cities, we did Coven in San Francisco, and we just did the Veil Film Festival, uh, which ended up being online. Because um, it was supposed to happen right as the lockdowns were happening and luckily they they pulled it kind of at the last minute and switched to an online format. Everywhere we've gone, um, just through a combination of uh, tenacious self-marketing and, and constant Twitter begging, we have had full houses, we have had incredible audience responses, uh, you know, so it's been great in terms of knowing like all right we weren't insane this is okay like we made something pretty good but you know has it led to distribution offers not yet has it you know did we win awards no but like you (laughs) you know from what like what so much of filmmaking depends on what your goals are in what you can get out of it and like you know the hope was always well hopefully this could boost us to a a better level of career and more work but also like the point of a movie is to make your audience happy and our audiences have been or happy or you know fulfilled in some way and then our audiences have been so i feel like we've done our jobs uh but you know are we are we resting on awards and many laurels of glory not quite no <laughs> but, but we weren't really expecting that given our resources
2: so, so going into the film um, oh, never mind you just answer that question how, how, let's let's talk about distribution so have you found a distributor yet or are you still looking like what what's the what's the status of that we situation? we
3: are still looking and i have to say this has been the most frustrating Part of the entire process. I honestly might take the heart surgery over this this part again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like none of, unfortunately, neither of my producers have experience with distribution, so this is new to them. Um, we hired an entertainment lawyer to. Our big stumbling block has been music rights, and we hired an entertainment lawyer to help us get clearance. Um, it worked for the festivals, but unfortunately, they kind of faded out and not been able to work with us on on uh, getting the rights that we would take to distributors so we're kind of stalled at that point and trying to work through it with three of us that know absolutely nothing about how to get music rights no know nothing about what to ask distributors for um beyond kind of what we've had friends and advisors tell us so that's hard this is an area of filmmaking where we're we're blind and we're we're working through it and we will get there but we're not there yet
1: what would be ideal for you, though, in terms of like, OK, let's think about what would be realistic and ideal for you? Obviously, ideal for every one of us on this on this podcast recording is like become a millionaire, <laughs> having a sustainable career. But what would you accept? What would be acceptable to you? Um.
3: Yeah. Well, this this may have changed. I mean, we, we would love to be on streaming platforms. We would love to be out there in a place where people can access the film and see it easily without, you know, having to beg us for a Vimeo link or go to one of three festivals, you know, so we're hoping for streaming deals. (laughs) We don't see theatrical release necessarily in our future, just because it is such a small movie and also because the world is ending. Um, But, you know, we're hoping also sort of that the need for content as, as the industry is kind of shut down, will put us in a better negotiating place. Um, because people need movies, need new movies, and this one's in the can. Um, but, you know, you hope it gets to a place where somebody sees it and says, hey, I would like that person to work on this thing for more money, um, and and that would be ideal. Also, we've put a significant chunk of our savings into this movie, so anything that that <laughs> helps get us back to to even on that would be great. We don't have enormous goals for this, like we think it's a good movie and we want to get it in front of as many people as possible. However that happens and not go broke.
2: And so going through this experience, like, do you feel like you want to do it again? Like, do you have like another idea for another movie that you'd want to go out and make in the same fashion? Or do you feel like the, the future of your next film is riding on the response and like, you know, where this movie ends up basically.
3: Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I, I I'm a screenwriter, so I have you know, <laughs> entire Dropboxes full of endless scripts at this point that I would love to make. Um, I don't really know how to get to the next step because there are new external obstacles like a pandemic that are going to make it difficult (laughs) um but definitely i want to make more film i would love to do just directing you know for hire as well i would love to direct tv i'd love to to get into more of that as as a job as well um but definitely we're going to have to handle fundraising next time because we won't have our savings to rely on we did crowdfunding for this film but i think next time would have to be crowdfunding plus trying to get uh, you know, small studio investments because uh, that's a, a well we, we can't go back to until we sell this movie at least um, and uh, hopefully it'll just get, you know, proportionally a little a little bit bigger and bigger until someone offers me Jurassic Park and then <laughs> I will make Jurassic Park, except it'll be a really emotional Jurassic Park, like about a Tyrannosaurus Rex going through youth and, you know having questions about eating other dinosaurs and coming to terms <laughs> with their self-doubt
1: well, um, oh, I had a question. What was it? Was it, it disappeared because I got excited about the Jurassic Park film? Um <laughs> as a as a writer and a director, so you you're a writer who got a taste for directing and fell in love with it, but are you still able to take a step back and sell a script or even like option a script for very little money in order <laughs> to get it seen and produced? Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> that happened this year.
3: Um and it was a great experience. We we were brought into. Can we talk about it? Our,
1: No, I just, I asked permission last night and all my producers were like, no. All right. (laughs) I was brought in by an excellent, excellent producer I know, uh, and and also writer
3: director to uh, work on it, to rewrite a script with my writing partner. Um, It also helps. I have a writing partner. He did not uh, write What Lies West with me. That was, that was on my own, although he was, you know, obviously advising me, but he keeps me grounded in the writing world a, a lot um and is a better writer than me so that's helpful in terms of being able to still take that step back and and just think in writer brain you know it it also has to do with scale the project he and i are working on right now is something i could never afford to direct on my own so now there's kind of two files there's big movies we would like to sell or like even medium budget movies you know 10 million dollar movies we'd like to sell that we write and there's little tiny movies that maybe we could do on our own or little tiny series that maybe we could shoot as a web series. we the entry of being able to direct like that, that skill has now given us two different directions we can go with our work, which is kind of fun.
2: So it sounds like you would do it again, even if you had to, to, to bootstrap it and scrape it all together. Like that's, it's not like, Oh, I did that once. And now I, I have to wait for the bigger opportunity. You know, it's like, no, you would go back out there and, and hustle it again you just have to figure out a different way to hustle it. yeah
3: absolutely if anybody wants to give me a hundred thousand dollars like <laughs> i will be on set as soon as it is safe to do so and not die uh i i would be happy to i would love nothing more than that um But it'll take a little more planning and probably more than three months next time.
2: And then one more question about uh, the craft and everything. Like you mentioned Jurassic Park. Is that like a goal? Like, would you want to direct like a big studio feature someday? Is that something that you have ambitions towards? Or is that like something like, oh, no, like more like a fantasy?
3: I mean, I would certainly like the money, Um, (laughs) you know uh rarely do women get the opportunity to shoot franchise films so it's also, it's something that probably is a fantasy but it's also something that i think that my voice could be valuable in and that i would really love to contribute to you know i, I love big franchise movies i love big action adventure movies those are always have always been kind of my my bread and butter cinematically for just for me <laughs> um right. so I, i'm definitely not gonna block marvel's calls uh, I just don't think they'd ever want me. I mean, realistically speaking, they're not interested in female perspectives in their in their
1: movies generally. I want to talk about, um, and I agree with you, but I want to talk about <laughs> um, audience building because, you know, you talked about distribution, you talked about feeling a little bit... Um, paralyzed legally with your film right now not being able to get out into the world but you've built up a very sizable impressive audience for yourself um as an artist especially in social media can you talk about how that happened and how you feed that audience on a regular basis
3: god i wish i could talk about that with some authority like it's been a plan uh (laughs) really what happened was about seven years ago i got a twitter account and just talk on i mean i there has been no strategy in building it it just got large i mean the only thing i did early on was follow everybody that i could find that was talking about screenwriting and movies and, and film and primarily writers writers are very big on twitter i think it's a great medium for us because it should be it's language based um and yeah i just you the thing with social media is you have, it, it's playing the lottery. I have gone viral for the stupidest damn things. It, just the dumbest, I am going viral right now today for say, tweeting something that said, fuck them up, Shakespeare, about the, tweet, the, the the Trump rally yesterday. Like, you, you <laughs> like are initially what jumped me from like, I'm a person with 800 followers to I have 5,000 followers was a... F- I yelled at Michael Moore on (laughs) during the election in 2016 and that suddenly exploded my audience and that seems to have happened with regularity I mean really the only insight I can give is just be good at being succinct and funny and you'll gain an audience over time but you know it's it's interesting because I I think my my social media following is somewhere around 45,000 at this point um And that translates to about, maybe if you're lucky, 1% engagement on any kind of fundraising or like active thing where anyone has to be active, even getting people to watch like a trailer, even getting people to share a link, like it's about 1% of your audience. Our crowdfunding, I had much fewer followers at the time, but our crowdfunding, we raised about $30,000, I think, via Seed&Spark. And that was from literally maybe three percent of my twitter audience um so it's it's a very low engagement rate because people don't want to do things people want to consume things but they don't want to they don't want to click things they don't want to do anything um so it's a very volatile audience and very difficult to actually get meaningful engagement it's good good dopamine though it's It's definitely good for your ego. So
2: you're saying when you tweet about Dirty Dancing, you can get 53,000 likes, basically. But when you tweet about your movie and how you need support, then it's not really the same kind of thing, right?
3: Yeah. I I mean, especially (laughs) back when we were fundraising for the movie, what I was lucky in was that the audience I had built was primarily film-based Um, And a lot of independent filmmakers and some bigger, a a few bigger writers um, who were very, very generous to me and very kind and, uh, you know, donated large amounts, gave us kind of the bona fide of of saying like, hey, this project looks great and putting it out to their audience. So, you know, you do more in targeting who you follow and who you attract as followers than
1: you do in any kind of bells and whistles you put on your posts. Sorry, that's really interesting. I think I always am so it's all about the content for me. I'm like, oh, I'm going to write something and someone's going to find it randomly. And then I'm going to, um, you know, do what Jessica Ellis did. But it sounds like you've, you've, um, well, you've, you've quaffed your, your network in a way that it's, you're surrounded by like-minded people who also have a massive reach. Yeah.
3: I, I mean, you know what you do on on social media is chase the people with bigger audiences or different audiences than you because if you can attract their audience's interest you know if you can get one person with a totally different segment of society that follows them to retweet you have marketed to you know another fifty thousand people that you you never had access to to begin with except through this one person but it's very high risk like it's it's not you can't. I mean, you. Can't, there are people that will DM other people and be like, "Hey, can you retweet this?" Generally, I I avoid doing that um, unless they are actually very close friends because it tends to breed more contempt than help, uh, in my experience. And you you have a limited amount of bridges you can burn. But yeah, it's it's tricky. It's not a reliable form that you could put a strategy to, I think, and and market success, know you're going to market successfully. It's something that if it works, it's great,
1: but it doesn't always work. So when, when people, I mean, I feel like I had a whole three years of my life where I was telling filmmakers, use social media, build your audience, do email lists. Like, has there been anything that has encouraged uh, substantive support for you as an artist that has come from whether it's emails or social media or in-person events. Have you found any sort of um, successful audience building for your filmmaking? I mean, definitely Twitter would be
3: the most successful platform, but it—I'm just saying—it's—it's—it's it's, it's not a hundred percent reliable because you just—I mean, after doing this, being on Twitter for six or seven years and being relatively successful at it. Like, I have no idea why I cannot tell you (laughs) when something is going to go viral and when something is going to get to likes, Uh, you know, I it's maybe there are smarter people with more analytical brains that can figure out how to strategize to get famous via social media. But like, that seems to be the most reliable platform for my voice, but I don't trust it. and and otherwise not not really i mean i will say that the most valuable thing about being on social media in general and being around film people is you make contacts and you make friends and it's a hell of a lot easier than going to cocktail parties for most writers i would think who aren't always great in person um and you get access to people you would never have access to ordinarily uh so i think it's valuable in network building but that doesn't always translate to substantive support.
2: Do, do you think it's important for filmmakers to be on social media? Or do you think it's like, oh, no, it works for who it works for, but it, not everyone has to do it?
3: I think I, I think it's important. I always advise younger filmmakers to, to get on Twitter and get into the film people because it can be useful in a variety of ways. I mean, there is stuff like crowdfunding and stuff you can do through it, but it is also just useful and there's tons of great writers and directors and other film professionals out there that do advice threads, that do times when you can ask questions, you know, it can be really valuable for your, having gone through a formal film education, uh, it can be, I would say, as valuable as what you can learn, you know, at USC or or AFI or any of the the grad schools. Um, You can get a whole education if you're smart about who you interact with. So. And you just, and you make friends and you know, the trick to surviving in Hollywood is anchoring yourself here with enough connections to keep you in the loop of getting jobs and getting work and finding people to work with. And it's a great tool to help anchor yourself.
1: And you're also podcasting now, Jessica. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about that and what inspired you to get into that form of communication and audience building.
3: Uh, very much in a similar way. I, it was like a Sunday night where it was like, maybe I should start a podcast. And then Tuesday morning I had a first episode. So um, I have very short bursts <laughs> of energy. I'm kind of like a, a sloth or something. Like I need long resting periods. And then and then I jump for a grape. Um, but yeah, I, I started a podcast right as the quarantine started called Distant Socials. It's just interviewing people kind of across the U.S. Initially, it was just about, you know, what is your situation? what what are, What's it like there? When, when we were very early in this and nobody knew what the hell was going on, it was just a way to connect with people and be like, so, hey, how are things going in Alaska? How are things going in Tennessee? What's going on with your life? How are you feeling about this? And it sort of evolved into over time into talking about, um, a lot of social and political issues associated with COVID nineteen and kind of the world we're in right now. I had a really interesting conversation with Abi Quijada uh, last week about um, sort of the the comparison she sees between how the U S is dealing with COVID and how her home country of Venezuela. Uh, dealt with a uh, kind of crazy president and their growing crises there and the similarities she sees. I talked to Shardae Sellers, another great um, writer producer uh, this week, or she'll be on the next episode about protesting safely during COVID. She's organized some of the big Black Lives Matter protests in LA. And so, you know, it's, it's all COVID related. And it was just a thing where it's like, I'm very bored. It's very difficult for me to write screenplays right now. So I just wanted to have a little a little project uh and that would maybe make people feel better and, and have ways to connect to other people during this
2: do you think you'll continue to podcast um once the quarantine is over i hope or not do you feel... i
3: hope i will go back to... <laughs> i hope i can go you know i have just had a, a nearly impossible time writing screenplays right now uh, and i like to be able to be working on something um, but the uncertainty of the situation has made writing scripts for movies that I don't know if they will ever get made or what the world will look like. So it seems weird to write contemporary stuff um, or how shooting will work in the future. It just feels kind of useless right now. So it's it's nice to have a project until we know what's going on. And then I want that project to go away and to get back to
1: filmmaking. <laughs> I think we're about ready to jump into the five final questions. All right, did you have I, any last? I,
2: I do have one last question. It. So you talked about um, graduating from AFI um, and uh, you know you, you seem to be in touch with a lot of your AFI graduates. I'm just curious like are you an outlier as someone who's gone on to direct their own feature film or would you say that most of the people from your uh, your class have all also directed films uh, since they graduated It
3: varies by discipline. Um, our cinematographers and our production designers and our editors from AFI they work pretty much from day one, um, you know, not necessarily making their own stuff, but they're very employable immediately. Um, The producers and writers and directors take a lot longer. And I I honestly think the writers are very ill-prepared for a professional life coming out of AFI. (laughs) It's not a writer-focused program. (laughs) Um, And I would say uh, there were 28 writers in my class. I would say at this point, 10 years out, more than half have quit entirely. Um, just never were able to break in. We have had a a few very stellar breakout directors from my class. Ari Aster was in my class. um
2: oh wow and, there you go uh,
3: and a and a, a few others who have made the moves, but you know it's a low percentage. I would say less than maybe less than ten percent out of the writer director group. Have made their own things. Um, there are some staff writers and stuff, but it's it's definitely not a certain way to get work
1: for sure.
2: Interesting. Yeah, I find it fascinating because, you know, like AFI is like probably one of the the schools on my list. If I like, if I was to be able to go to grad school, if I had thought of, of applying to grad school earlier like that would probably have been one of the ones I would have gone after and so it's just really interesting to me to hear like what the experience is like for people who graduated through that program yeah
3: it's a it's a mixed um I have very mixed feelings go USC fight on (laughs) the Trojans Mm.
1: uh
2: all right last final five questions do you have anything else Liz
1: I mean, I always like to ask my question about success, but I feel like Jessica's just gonna make some very funny, quippy, self-deprecating comment, but that's me judging Jessica before I, she I answers. Won't, I, I
3: won't, now that I'm warned. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I guess my question, I, I like to ask the question of like, do you feel like a success? I mean, you have a lot of success behind you, but how do you feel in, in terms of your place in your career?
3: Oh, no, absolutely not. No, 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 <laughs> nowhere <laughs> close. Um, you know, <laughs> I, it's difficult you have your fantasy life where you win oscars and everyone loves you and you get all the money to make any project you want and i'm never probably going to be successful by that metric almost no one is um i am at a point now where i'm very proud of what i'm accomplished but i'm nowhere near where i would like to be you know i've never sold a script commercially to a studio i've had lots of projects dissolve somewhere in the development process like i've never i can't get staffing meetings even though i've been repped repeatedly like literally can't get the meetings so it feels like by the metric of like am i a constantly working getting paid for a writer i'm very much behind where i would like to be but at the same time i'm proud of what i've accomplished and i think i've accomplished a significant amount um but i'm ambitious so i would like it to be much much more than it
2: is i love that answer It's like, you can see the successes, but you also see where you, you want to be, you know? And I think like most ambitious people are, are probably like that. Yeah.
3: You, you have to learn to ride it. Like you can't tell yourself you don't want to be successful and, you know, relatively comfortably money and, and be getting to do all these creative things, but you also can't tell yourself that you're nothing. Like that's also denying reality. So I don't know. You, you just, you learn to ride your ambition.
2: All right. So final five, I want to go first. Um, what's the first film you ever made and how do you feel about it now?
3: Uh, this was the first film I ever made. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, made in what capacity? Uh,
2: uh, you know, I mean, acted in, produced, okay, directed, The whatever. very
3: first film I made at grad school, I was the... <laughs> The writer, and again, I would like to remind you that the writers have no control. We can't pick the story. Uh, The directors can rewrite it. They can throw out the script. It was a story about a serial rapist um, called The Rapist, and I was not happy with any part of that process, (laughs) 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 then or now. (laughs)
1: Um, What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received?
3: Uh, I took one of my director friends out to lunch before I started shooting and was like, Hey, can you teach me everything about directing over coffee? Um, And (laughs) the best advice he gave me was to approach actors always by saying, can we try this? Uh, Uh. And it works in all capacities. I would say approach everyone with this as opposed to a demand or telling them what they're doing wrong. Approach them with like, let's experiment. Let's, let's give it a shot this way because that empowers people to decide how they want to approach something and until and, and it it makes them more open to listening than than feeling like they're being dragged in a direction um and that that was incredibly useful advice that i would apply to every aspect of life i love that
2: yeah i love that too <laughs> uh do you have a goal as a filmmaker
3: i mean i would like to make enough money to live <laughs> well <while> not completely <laughs> sacrificing my voice in it I I would really just like to be able to to make stuff I I want to make to tell the stories I want to tell um and that involves a lot of privilege
1: and a lot of luck if you could go back in time what's the one piece of advice you would give yourself
3: uh that you're not going to be a monster on set I I really wish (laughs) I had known that a lot earlier because maybe I wouldn't have waited seven years to try it but I was so and I think a lot of women hear this that they're bossy that they're you know difficult that they're rude and I don't th- several years of therapy have taught me that I don't think I'm really any of those things and that I you know I have control over how I want to present myself and you know that that would have been useful 10 years ago
2: after talking to you for like 45 minutes I can't imagine you being a monster on set it just doesn't seem possible
3: I, many people seem to have been able to imagine that for me but it was not That's true funny. <laughs>
2: Uh, last question is making movies hard.
3: I mean, yes, making movies is hard. It's less hard, I think, for a director than for anybody. Um, you don't have to put your vulnerable face on the screen and you don't have to lug hundred pound equipment all day or work, you know, 14 hour days hauling things in 90 degree heat. I think it is hard. And I think we focus on the wrong people in it too often.
4: Here, here.
2: Mm, yes, here, here. Um, so Jessica, where should people go if they want to learn more about you, uh, or watch your movie, or any of those things? Uh,
3: well, they can join my many throngs <laughs> followers on Twitter. <laughs> join, join my cult on Twitter at Baddest Mamajama. Uh, they can also listen to my podcast at Distant Socials, and they can follow the movie at, at What Lies West. But usually, it's just easier to follow me because I. I'm bad at maintaining multiple accounts at once. And I run
2: them all. Awesome. Uh, Yeah. I I don't even think I was following you at the time, but your Dirty Dancing tweet made it onto my, uh, (laughs) you know, my phone. And I laughed. It was very funny. Well, good. Thank you. Um...
1: That's my only goal. Yeah,
2: that's good. Your Anna awesome. Green
1: Gables thread was sent to me by a girl in from my high school. <laughs> like It's the weirdest thing in the world to me that yeah. I hadn't talked to for like 10 years. Uh, somebody sent
3: me the other day uh, a comedy website had stolen a tweet of mine without att- like without a link back or without asking me and like posted it under their banner as if they owned it. And I oh. that is the only time I've gone really ballistic about Internet property rights on Twitter because that bothered me because they would not hire me. I tried to get a job there,
1: but they will steal my stuff. Oh, they regret it now.
3: (laughs) They better. I gave them a yelling. I gave them a Twitter yelling.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Twitter yelling.
2: So thank you everybody for listening, and thanks so much to Jessica for coming on the show. I hope that she gets to tweet about us every day, and then one of those tweets goes viral, and then everyone is listening to this episode. Uh, don't think that's how Twitter works as we learn and talking to her, but, um, exciting nonetheless. Uh, you can check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com making, gosh, I should just say that again. You can check out our website, makingmoviesishard.com where you can find links to things we've talked about in this episode, including where to find Jessica. If you want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to podcast at makingmoviesishard.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MMIH podcast. I am all B on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook. Liz, where are you?
1: I'm Liz Manischel on Twitter and Liz Manichelle Film on Instagram.
2: And then please, if you like the show, tell a friend. Let's spread the word out. You can leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher, or you can follow us on YouTube. You can join our Patreon. There's so many ways that you can support the show. So do any of those things. And yeah, talk to you guys next week. So here's Alec to talk about his book and some tips.
1: I didn't listen to him, so I have nothing to say about what Alec just said. Alec, Alec, Alec.